This episode of the Disney Film Project is sponsored by touringplans.com. Head over to touringplans.com and use their tools to save yourself time and money when you are at Walt Disney World or Disneyland. You can use the Lines application on your mobile phone, use the crowd calendar to figure out which parks to hit which days, or use the touring plans to save time and money waiting in line. Touringplans.com is the sponsor of this episode of the Disney Film Project. Welcome again, everybody, to the Disney Film Project Podcast. This is the program where we talk about the films of the Walt Disney Company. So let's get to it. I'm Ryan Kilpatrick. I run DisneyFilmProject.com, where we write about the shorts, the feature films, the true life adventures, and everything in between of the Walt Disney Company. I am joined in that endeavor by our friends that you have come to know and love. First of all, we have Mr. Todd Perlmutter, who is a blogger over at touringplans.com, chief technical officer at disneydrivenlife.com, works on onmaco and mco.com, and has well invented a flying machine, I think. Is oh, that yeah. correct? Uh, that's like a precursor to time travel. Come on. Child's play. I'm Trying to play into the theme, you know what I'm saying? I know. I know. Well, actually, I was thinking, you know, when you said the the, the travel the travels by Disney or whatever you just said. I, yes, <laughs> I think that fit well too for the theme, you know. There you go. True life adventures. True life adventures. That was it. I always forget what those animal things are called. Yes, the ones where animals you watch animals do stuff and then die every single episode. <laughs> no, no, no. There's one. Up now in Beaver Valley, that's up on the site. You can go look for it, and it's uh, it, the, the animal does not die at the end, but he also does not do anything remotely interesting. The animal lives. Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much the most interesting thing he does throughout the whole film. <laughs> All right, our other film buff that tends to join us is Miss Brianna Alessio, who you can find at Adventures of Bree at adventuresofbree.blogspot.com. She is busy at work trying to make some money to move down to Orlando. She will be rejoining us soon, but in the meantime, you can check her out over at disneyfilmproject.com and get her reviews of the films as well, so make sure you check that out. We are also joined by our fine producer, scheduler, uh, I think, Stand-in mother, Miss Cheryl Perlmutter, who you can find on Twitter at CherylP3 or at about.me slash CherylP3. She keeps Todd and I in line, which I will uh, easily cop to. It's not an easy thing to do. How are you, Cheryl? Doing good. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. All right. So today we are talking about... Around the World Eight Days. Yes, it's a Disney film, and it's got Jackie Chan, so the level of awesomeness starts very high. That's what I have to say. Really? Uh, no, well, I, I, you, I, no, no. Well, okay. Uh, so, I actually like the movie, but I like the movie for uh, for reasons that we'll get into. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're not surprised as to what why I like the movie. I mean, it doesn't seem to be widely acclaimed, right? And that's what I was going to say is, like I said, I like Jackie Chan. He's funny. I like Disney movies. So you putting the two together would be a good uh, a good way to start. The critics did not agree. This was not a well-reviewed film. It is, uh, what, hovering in the 30s on Rotten Tomatoes at this point? Um, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not, not exactly a worldwide match. No. Yeah. 
So we watched the movie on Google TV using the Plex Media client. It shows up as four stars, and I'm thinking, who, what service did it find four stars for this? Because I know <laughs> nobody actually rated it that high, so I thought that was kind of interesting, but I never tracked down why. I just thought that was an interesting thing. Um, That's pretty funny. Yeah, this was um, it's pretty much considered a flop out the door. Yes, um, um, because it was an expensive movie to make. Yeah, uh, well, okay, so there's a lot of factors counting against it here, though, to be fair, right? So to show you how bad it was, its opening day take was about $1.5 million on 2,700 screens. That's about $550 per screen back then, okay, which meant that there was about 50 people in the theater per showing. Yeah. Okay, so not full theaters, nothing, okay? However, while it was considered a flop initially and for the first few years when it turned DVD sales, it actually took off in DVD sales. It did very well in DVD sales, so it's actually not on the, fl- on the worst all-time flop lists in terms of overall, but it's, it still hasn't ever made its money back either. So, Well, when, when I say to you Jack Chan and Jules Verne, those are not things that you expect to be put together in a movie. So, have you ever seen the original 1956 version of this? No, I have not. Okay. So, that movie has – it is very, very more true to the book, okay? It's, it's, but it's equally funny, and if you watch the role of the Passport 2 character in there, you could actually see Jackie Chan being that, the character, even in the older version. Okay. So, I, I think it's actually a working role that he's a – Chinaman playing a Frenchman is kind of odd, but to be fair, in the original movie, a Mexican was playing a Frenchman, so... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I, I'm more saying from a way of explaining why there was only 50 people in the theater. If you, if you said, you know, around the world in 80 days with this British, you know, a, a British gentleman and Jackie Chan circumnavigating the globe... You, it doesn't tend to lend itself to Jackie Chan's style of, of movie making, I guess, would be a better way to put it. it yes. in, in concept, like in the film, I agree with you, it actually works very, very well. But in concept, it's a hard thing for people to wrap their heads around. One of the things he was trying to do at the time was break into American movies because, he, because going directly from his production company or the production companies that licensed his production company directly into the U.S. was still having the limited low penetration that martial arts films tend to have in the U.S. Right. So he'd been, uh, he'd been looking for alternate channels. So we had him in the – what was the movie where he was in with Chris Rock and their cops, right? Uh, Rush, Hour. Rush Hour. Rush, Rush Hour. Hour. Yep. Rush Hour is a very good funny movie, but it's also still not a great Jackie Chan vehicle, Right. Right. Also, he was in um, The Tuxedo. The Tuxedo. And right. Shanghai oh. Nights. And Tuxedo's also a Disney movie? No, no tux- it's not. Um, DreamWorks. You're right. Okay, it was DreamWorks. Okay, and there's a reason for that. So he had made his contract with Walden at this time, right? And Walden yes. had uh, made a contract with Disney to release di- movies with Disney, and that's what one of these movies is, right? It was supposed to be this, and then the follow-on was supposed to be Journey to the Center of the Earth. Okay, it was supposed to be a gotcha. Disney movie originally, okay? And what happened was is this movie went poorly, so Walden pulled out and went with New Line instead, okay, because Eisner was being a jerk at the time. And let's face it, there's really no other way to describe what was going on with Michael Eisner at this point in time other than he was being a jerk, okay? This, uh, this is 2004, people, yes. just so you know, this is yeah, when the movie came out. Um, he was – at this time, he'd already been removed from the board. 
he was still CEO of the company, and they were practically begging him to just leave the company. And he refused. And he refused. Uh, he was causing problems with uh, Pixar. He was causing um, – he caused the split between uh, Disney and Miramax at this time. And he was, he was greenlighting every crazy idea in creation just to – try and boost his own personal stock portfolio, I'm pretty sure. Because the prior movies to this that were all f- considered flops were, uh, and all Disney movies were The Alamo, The Lady Killers, and Raising Helen. Okay. Wow. <laughs> so it was, wow. Not a, it was not a good time. Uh, also, um, the week that this movie was set to release, guess what else was in the theater? Skyrocketing to the top on both, for both movies. Uh, uh, I'm going to go with a Harry Potter movie. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban and Shrek 2. And Shrek 2 is one of the, what, top five grossing films of all time? Yeah, at the time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so... I, I, th- no, I think, like, to the day, I think it's number six on oh, Box Office. Okay, that's, that yeah. may be. Um, so it's... If, if you look at it like that, I mean, this movie was basically set up to fail being released in the box office when it was released in the box office. Had it been released three months earlier or three months later, it might have had a much different take. It's really hard to yeah. say. It's not bad. No. That, that's the first thing people should understand. It's not a bad movie. And right. I've never seen it until, until we started watching it for this. It's not bad at all. Actually, it's, it's really good. It's really entertaining. And it, you can tell that they actually listen – Listen to Jackie Chan when making this movie because there's a lot of the things that Jackie Chan likes to do in this movie that we'll get into when we get to the particular scenes that are very key things that Jackie Chan not only brings to movies but brings to martial arts in general. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's very good. It is, it is not necessarily a good adaptation of Around the World in eight days. That's one thing. I agree. Know, so. I wanted to comment that about the Walden Media that none of the movies that Walden Media have done with Disney, other than the first um, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, have done very well. Because um, they also did um, Bridge to Terabithia, um, The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe number two, which was such an epic failure that, that Disney said, no way, we're not going to break our deal, and you can figure out what to do with number three through whatever you're gonna do. I don't know if the problem was on Disney's part or Walden's part. Whatever it is, it didn't work here. Also, I've seen the Golden Compass, and while that was good, that didn't work either. I'm just wondering if someone on the Walden area was controlling things and telling them that you have to stick to this, this, and this plot point. Well, I think, I think like, so for people who aren't familiar, Wally Media is a studio, sort of an independent studio, just like, like Marvel Studios is not a, a, an actual studio. They don't have a distribution arm. Walden's the same way, right? They make, make the movies, and then they have to have somebody distribute them, and they had signed a distribution deal with Disney, like Cheryl mentioned about uh, Chronicles of Narnia, the first film, this film, and there was a few others, Bridge to Terabithia that she mentioned. Holes is one of the ones. But what Walden specializes in is taking novels, uh, family-friendly novels, and adapting them into feature films. Mainly either classic novels like this or you know, Newbery award-winning children's novels like Holes or 
some of those uh, and adapting them into films. And if you've seen many of their films, and I've probably since I have children, I've seen quite a few of them. Um, they take great pains to make their films light and fluffy and airy. Yeah. Would be the way I would categorize them. Like, there's not a lot of conflict to them. There's not a lot of consequence. There's not a lot of drama. Um, you know, they they make them their films for kids, and they really don't apologize for that. Um, which, as a parent, I actually kind of appreciate, but it doesn't make for necessarily the most compelling movies ever. Right. They don't. They don't tend to skyrocket to the charts as as a result. Right. It's it's not like a film like 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 Avengers you could go to, but there's you know there's there's death in that movie, and there's 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 some violence and you know those sorts of things um, that you'd have to explain to your kids. You're not going to have to watch a Walden movie for the most part and have to explain a whole lot. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, but that is to say that they are again as a parent. I actually appreciate that. I I know I can go to the movies and you know relax and enjoy it. So, uh, but this specific film, like we said, not exactly a very close adaptation of Around the World in Eighty Days, the Jules Verne novel. Uh, they they take sort of take the characters and the basic setup and go from there. Would be the best way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Um, they also um, – so here's the thing, right? Jules Verne always um, never – he talked about things that could go on in the future but tended to write about them as if they'd already happened, right? So this mm-hmm. movie – so the, the book, the, the actual book Around the World in 80 Days, it was released in 1873, but the story takes place in 1872, and that is one of the things that they kept accurate in this movie, is it takes place in 1872. Okay? Um, but they add all this stuff to it that is com- that would not have been in existence to 18- in 1872. <laughs> of course. Yeah, no, no, they, they really do. It, they, go, they go well out of their way to do it. It's, uh, but I think it's, I think it's more for the humor of the moment, and because they realized that most people probably didn't catch that it was 1872 and that that sometimes sometimes when you're making a movie that is an action adventure comedy which is what technically this is right yes <laughs> um you you take liberties like that to, to you tend to lean towards the comedy when you're mixing it with the action adventure rather than let the action adventure take hand because otherwise then you end up with not being a comedy so um like i said it's 1872 um let's start with lord kelvin Yes. Right? The the imitable William Thomason in real life, okay, uh, was did did not receive his baronship until 1892. In reality, thus would not have been Lord Kelvin in 1872. Correct. Okay, so that's uh, this is Kelvin absolute zero extra temperature scale that you learn in science and forget about in reality. Other than yes. the words absolute zero. <laughs> Play, um, played in the movie by Jim Broadbent, who you might know from the Harry Potter movies. He was Professor Slughorn. Yes, he was. And he did a great job of Slughorn. Um, yes, he he was also in the Narnia movie. Yes, he was. Um, the Wright brothers um, were only born a couple of years before this would have taken place. <laughs> and did not appear in the original book. 
No, they did not appear in the original book. That's true, too. Uh, that's because the flying machine didn't exist in the original book. That was not how they solved several of their problems in the, in the original book. Yeah, um, most, most of the things in the movie after the original setup did not appear in the original book, to be yes, fair. Yes, that's, that's true. Um, the Eiffel Tower did not exist in 1872? No. Okay, Statue of Liberty, the project did not start until 1875. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and the head that they show would have still been in Paris had it even been in existence and being built at that point in time. So it yeah, was because yeah. it was at the Paris. The real thing was at the Paris World's Fair in 1878. Just so people understand that. It seems to me they took sort of a, a Forrest Gump approach, I'd call it, to the whole journey. Yeah. As in, they they tried to have these guys, the, the main characters, Phileas Fogg and and Jackie Chan's character Passepartout bump into as many famous people from history along the way as they could. Of course, none of which was reflected in the original work. Yes, I agree. I think from start to finish, it works fine in the context of the movie. I think when you try and look at it in the reality is when it falls apart, but I don't... Again, this is a comedy, and I don't... I tend to give comedies a little bit more leeway than I do a regular, you know, more serious drama-type movie, so... Yeah, absolutely. I think I I think you're absolutely right. It's it's in, it's not intended to be, you know, an absolute historical document or anything like that. It's intended to be a fun movie, and and that's what they accomplished. Yes. One thing that's in the movie that I didn't realize was actually a real historical thing was the Ten Tigers. Um, they were oh, really? at, yeah. They were actually a group of Chinese martial artists, of which there were ten associated at any point in time from the years from the 1600s to the 1900s. Okay. They did, in fact, come from the Canton region of China. Okay. And their, their martial arts stylings were related to those of Shaolin Kung Fu. They were kind of sort of like, you know when you see, hear all those things like the three iron tiger style and all those things in the movies? That's, yes. what, the, that's what the real ten tigers all were. Each one was a, their, the master specialist of the particular type. There's actually a whole really cool uh, Wikipedia page and a website about them. It's pretty neat. And I'm, I know I'm really jumping the gun here, but Sammo Hung is in this movie. Uh, Sammo Hung is a longtime film partner of Jackie Chan. They went into business yes. together. They, they are uh, to each other. They are big brother and big big brother, just so everybody knows. Um, and that's how they refer to each other in real life. Um, he's playing a character named Wang Fei Hung, who is not actually one of the Ten Tigers, though in this movie he is one of the Ten Tigers, but in the reality, he's actually, the re- in real life, the 11th Tiger. He is this big revolutionary folk hero of China in the early 1900s. I thought that was a very interesting drop-in, so, uh, that they put that in the movie. So, you know, that's where it is. Slinky obviously invented way after the movie time frame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... It, it, like I said, it's not necessarily a, a adaptation of the Jules Verne book because, I mean, it starts off from the very beginning with the deviation, which is Jackie Chan sh- sort of shows up immediately as having robbed the Bank of England. And we don't know what he stole. We don't know what it's all about. He's just running from the police. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in order to get away from them, he jumps into the yard of Phileas Fogg, who in this version is an inventor. Yes. Both of these and, are deviations. Yeah, Phileas Fogg is played by Steve Coogan, uh, who I think does a, a great job of being stuck up in British, which is the role he's meant to play in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I actually, he, he really makes the movie. Yes. 
I don't know another way to do this. I mean, for those that don't know, Steve uh, Coogan is uh, mainly well-known in British television for playing this uh, act- character called Alan Partridge, who is a fictional uh, radio and television personality. And, all, and the whole TV series is about him, go through his rise and fall through his career. And they actually have like a movie coming out in a co- in next year or the year after. Oh, very cool. Yeah, so he will he will be out, and there's an Alan Partridge of the movie coming out for those people who are fans. Interesting. But so Phileas, you know, the only way he can hide is you know Phileas is firing his old valet because his valet it uh, refused to strap on the steam powered rocket and fly around the yard trying to break the fifty mile an hour speed barrier. Yes. Which I have to say, looking at that elderly gentleman, I cannot blame him for that. <laughs> Not to mention he's he's wearing so it's a it's it's an obviously steampunk thing, right? And you find out later it definitely is steampunk because it's running on steam power and everything like that. But yes, it's it's like an armored suit with a big huge helmet and a big rocket pack on the back. I mean, really, there's that scares even me. Yes, but of course, Jackie Chan's character uh, we don't know his name at this point. He has no he has no escape so he has to do it otherwise he will end up back with the police so he does he ends up doing it and they do break the 50 mile an hour speed record uh while shooting jackie chan out into the middle of the street through the air with the steam-powered rocket on his back yes the delivery between the two of them of the comedic lines is amazingly good i mean they really interact well jackie chan who himself you know he he patterns himself after buster keaton with his sense of humor right he's that's that's a big part of his biography um him and steve coogan together when they're throwing these little quips back and forth are very very funny and and there's this moment where he jumps out of the tree just before they do the you know when the one guy quits and he's like he he goes is there no man brave enough to be my valet and he falls out of the tree and goes and he goes i commend the valet service (laughs) I just it's very entertaining the way they play all this stuff. I'm like you know, like he's completely clueless about the reality and has his cuz he has his own little picture of rules that he lives within, which you find out more about through the movie and Jackie Chan is just like going along with it. Yes. And the the problem is of course Jackie Chan, we don't know what what he is he's hiding at this point, but he's he's got to hide from the police. Uh, meanwhile, Phileas Fogg is trying to make his presence known with the Royal Academy of Science. So those two Things are directly in conflict with each other. There's, there's just no way for that to end well for either of them, frankly. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very, very interesting. They have this little scene where he's learning about all the rules and all the contraptions of the house, and it's very interesting because he's got you know an air conditioner and, and, and electricity in his basement and, and stuff like that, which electricity is a huge deviation as well for people who don't know at this point in time. Um, and but I like the joke about the the whistling enhancement that he makes to the electrical stuff. <laughs> the little, the little yes. joke they make that it's very that was a clapper joke that they make, but they do it with whistling. But it's still just as entertaining. Um, and uh, it's it's just very funny the whole the whole little to do before they even get to the Royal Academy there. So they establish the character together in that in that good ten fifteen minutes uh, at the beginning of the movie. But then they head to the Royal Academy of Science with Phileas Fogg on his wheelie shoes, which is basically roller skates. <laughs> yeah, they're very funny, the wheelie shoes. Yeah. Uh, with, with Jackie Chan chasing behind him. 
but he takes the name Passepartout in case you're not familiar with the Jules Verne novel because that's the name of the valet in the Jules Verne novel. So he takes the name Passepartout and pretends to be a French valet, even though he is clearly Chinese. French yes. on his father's <laughs> side, Chinese on his mother's side. I, I really like the explanation for why he, he speaks with a nice accent. Yes. <laughs> it was, what was it? It was, it was oh, Dad, he, he's very somber and quiet, never talks. Mom can't, st- can't stop talking. <laughs> yes. Fr- French father never, never speaks. Chinese father never shuts up. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. But when we get to the Royal Academy of Science, we have the aforementioned Lord Kelvin, uh, who basically spends his time mocking Phileas Fogg and says that everything worth discovering has already been discovered. Uh, and eventually pressures him into a bet to, to see whether he can travel the world in 80 days. And that's the basic setup of the book uh, we follow through the rest of the film. If he wins, he becomes Minister of Science in Lord Kelvin's place. And if he loses, uh, he has to destroy his laboratory, the British refer to it, and can never invent anything again. Yes. It, it's good because they get him very upset because of, because of the, f- the fact, the comment that everything that's already been discovered has already been discovered. Uh, that actually makes him really upset because he is, like you said, he's an inventor and he figures things out and he makes things. And he feels that it's – they're stifling the um, progression of man, basically, is kind of his point of view almost. Just right. to put the character's brain in. Now, there was no Royal Academy of Science. I just want to be clear about that. The actual thing that they're talking about here is the Royal Society. That's what they're poking fun at, which is this British institution that's been around for a very long time. And this, they kind of are the elite of the uh, Royal Society of Britain, and they have this club. And it's like a men's club, though they let women in now, but back then it would have been a men's-only club. Right. And I, I'm, I'm not crazy, right? The Royal Academy of Sciences shows up in other Vern works, Correct. Um, no, it's it's not even in the book. It's not the Royal Academy of Science at all. It's just a men's club. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. I've heard the term somewhere, and I can't figure it, out where. It might just be a movie meme where they make it up as a thing in the past. I'm not really sure. I mean, in the book, the um, story is that the wager is only for 20,000 pounds, which is way l- less money than – like any of the guys could have afforded a 20,000-pound debt. So it's really a matter of pride. As to whether they win or lose, the money is meaningless. Okay, so the stakes in this movie are actually higher than the stakes in the Jules Verne novel or the original version of the movie, if you look at them that way. Yeah, good point. So they they get ready, they prepare to leave the next day, Phileas and Passepartout, and uh, they are about to take a steam-powered carriage that uh, Phileas has hooked up when Inspector Fix shows up, uh, who is also a character from the book. Uh, that Lord Kelvin has basically hired as a police officer to stop them. Uh, Unfortunately for him, they are able to escape, and the carriage and its steam power sort of takes off without him. Or rather, the steam-powered carriage takes off with Inspector Fix attached to it. Yes. And uh, they take off in his carriage to the steamship that will carry them to Paris. Right. Uh, like you said, though, it, it, Fix is an original character. You, you might think that he was added as more a comedy element in this movie, but no. He's, he's from the original book. He's one of the four major characters in the original book, right? Because the original book, Phileas Fogg, Passport 2, um, I, the female Indian lady, I can't remember her name. It's like Aurora or something like that. Uh, Aud- Aud- it's A-O-D-R-A. 
Ordra, I think. Yeah. And uh, Fix are the four main characters in the uh, in the original book, so he is actually a core character, and this is his purpose. The difference is is that he, in the book, uh, there, Passport Two did not rob the bank or anything. He is really just a valet. That's an important distinction. The book ensues because Fix see, mistakes Fog for being a robber in the book, and that's why he goes after Fog and tries to steer him towards British or soil so that he can then arrest him. So the book actually does go through Hong Kong where later on they detour away from Hong Kong and this, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. It was definitely the movie was tailored to Jackie Chan's strengths. Because Absolutely. Because the things that we find out and the places that we go are tailored to putting him in situations where he can perform martial arts and you know interact with other characters that can that would reasonably be able to do the same things he can do. Right, or his comedy stylings are uh, enhanced yes. by what's going on. That's definitely true, too. Absolutely. It was, it was made around him, which is why his name appears above the title on the poster. Yes. Good point. Yes. So they are headed to Paris, and when they, when they reach Paris, the problem is uh, Lord Kelvin, we find out, is in league with General Fang, who is a female general... From China. Yes, a warlord. Yes, completely fictionalized. Yes. She has arranged to give him the Jade Buddha. We don't know where the Jade Buddha is from or any of that information at this point, but we know that she has given him the Jade Buddha, and we find out that's what was stolen from the Bank of England. So we can presume that at this point, Passpart 2 is the one who stole it. Agree. And... In exchange, Fang has given it to Kelvin, and Kelvin is going to give her military assistance in China to take over a province of, of some kind, Yeah, one would assume. Yeah, this, her, side, her motivations are kind of sort of not – I don't feel they're ever very clear. No. No. Um, Kelvin's are very clear, though, strangely. I mean, like his side of the equation, it's, he is just there to make – to get money out of it. And he doesn't really care about much else. You know, he's all power-oriented. As long as he maintains his power and gets money, he's good. Right? Right. I don't really understand what she's going on because whatever was going on in the first half of the movie is completely contradicted by her deal, her deal later on in the movie. Yeah, I think she is in the movie – like, Lord Kellen is the main villain, and she is in the movie, again, just to play to Jackie Chan's strengths, right? Because she's a Chinese warlord, she can send Chinese martial artists after him. Oh, sure. That's, that's her purpose. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so we find all of this out, and it plays into when we get to Paris, because Passepartout Two and Phileas are in Paris, all of a sudden, and I found this very amusing, Passepartout Two is looking around as they're trying to find you know, the uh, train that will take them across the continent, and he sees... Several Chinese men <laughs> dressed as Frenchmen <laughs> yes. that he knows are after him. Uh, oddly enough, so you, you laugh, but this is – so when I went to Paris, some of the best food I had was in the Chinatown that's actually in Paris. That doesn't surprise me. So uh, – and, and they do have a huge Chinese population. I don't know if it was like that in the late you know, 19th century. But were the Chinese men dressed in berets and trying to wear fake French mustaches? I'm not sure about that. I did find I did find it entertaining. <laughs> the funny thing is, is, is for a moment, the, the whole uh, French uh, cultural thing clashing against the Chinese cultural thing actually happens a lot in martial arts movies. 
Yeah. So it, it's it's just like it's so I think it's just another comedy element that Jackie Chan said, you know what, you really want to do this and trust me it'll work fine. And it kinda sort of does. Yeah, no, it works great because he so he trusts to avoid them and he he sees this painting and again, remember, he's pretending to be French, so he pretends that he can read the French. All he sees is a light bulb, which in this case is actually symbolizing ideas rather than electricity. Uh, but because he knows Phileas, as we mentioned earlier, has electricity and idolizes Thomas Edison, he relates it to that and says, here, we have some time. Let's go to this convention, and Thomas Edison will be there as a way to avoid these French-Chinese gentlemen who are going to attack him. Yeah. Instead, it ends up being sort of a farce as they chase him through this place because what it is is, like I said, an idea area where art is being created in this little convention space. So they're trying to – he's trying to escape while these gentlemen are chasing him through the art area. Meanwhile, Phileas is speaking with a young lady named Monique Laroche who is trying to become an impressionist painter. So you have the juxtaposition of him talking with you know, he, the very rules-oriented, you know, as I said, uptight British gentleman with the free-flowing impressionistic French lady. Meanwhile, in the background, there's these Chinese gentlemen running back and forth doing martial arts, and it makes for a very funny scene. He, he also has this great comment. He goes, this is – Art, not science. <laughs> <laughs> but what's even more what's even more funny is that uh, they have so if you look around the pictures in the room, right? There's only two artists, two main artists represented. There are a couple other things in there, but primarily it's works of Van Gogh and works of Toulouse Latreau, right? And yes. all over the room, and so it's very entertaining because you you see all these things and proprietor is like, don't let anything happen to the painting. So Jackie Chan does a thing where she's in the middle of fighting and then he stops gently rescues the painting and gives it to the guy and then continues on his way <laughs> yes. at one point. I really enjoyed that. So one of the big things that Jackie Chan does, and this is like a, a styling that he is actually responsible for in martial arts and martial arts movies in general, is that it, the art of interacting with your environment but turning it almost comedic. Okay? Yes. And that actually happens uh, during this scene for the first time in the movie is that he is uh, fighting these guys and he starts fighting them upstairs in this back room where there's this giant canvas set up. And, paint is, and they're throwing paint all over the place at each other and throwing dust all over. And they do, they do a couple of things. And then he starts fighting with them. And he starts bashing their feet into the canvas and their heads into the canvas. And he actually ends up painting this whole big uh, painting that's, you know, like, like a tree yes. with apples and stuff like that. It's very entertaining. That was very funny. Because I didn't know what they were doing with the paint. All of a sudden, you see the you know it, it ends up being a tree and some apples and things. Yeah, very very amusing. And very typically uh, Jackie Chan. Oh yeah, absolutely. But, but they, they managed to escape, um, and we find out that it is indeed him that has the Jade Buddha. But they managed to escape, and then they go on this madcap chase through Paris because Monique uh, has decided she's going to go with them, and. Jackie Chan sees a, or FR2, I should say, sees a hot air balloon, and they decide to jump in the hot air balloon. The problem being that Fang's warriors are down below with the hot air balloon, and Phileas has left his valise, and a, and a French lady's picked it up, so Passepartout has to get out of the hot air balloon, fight off the warriors, take the valise, and then get back into the hot air balloon. The problem being that it's, you know, flying through the city, so he's hanging on the rope all alternately run through buildings on top of buildings, saving babies from getting burned. Uh, yes. I mean, just, there's a, it, there's, it's, a, it's a madcap face. There's a couple of cameos in this entire scene. 
Uh, first of all, the balloon operator is Sir Richard Branson, who owns the Virgin Corporation. You know, like Virgin yes. Atlantic, Virgin America, Virgin Mobile, all that. He, so the reason why he's the balloon operator is because you, while people today tend to know him for the, for the Virgin Corporation, he's actually very famous for uh, balloon-oriented world records. Right? Like, if you remember, he was, he's, he was one of the most successful and fastest flights across the Pacific, across the Atlantic. He tried to circumnavigate the globe, but, w- but that was a failed thing. But he, I mean, this is stuff that people would never think to do in a balloon, but he did it. So, Indeed. So he's there. And, if, and the, the lady who's in the burning area, that's Macy Gray. I did not know that. Yes, okay. so that's, that's, that's uh, you know, actor-singer Macy Gray. There you go. <laughs> Okay, I did not know that. I, I other than that, I, the old lady thing is kind of sort of. I felt I got the gag, but I felt it a little, went on a little bit too long. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it definitely goes on for quite a bit. But I mean, that part I think is is just very funny. Uh, it's it's like you said, it's a typical Jackie Chan and it's over the top comedy, and you know they they do a good job of of, of playing for it. But yeah, it does it does kind of drag on a bit. Yeah, the statue uh, with the uh, freaky smile. Yes, <laughs> that yes. Uh, they managed to get on the Orient Express uh, and start heading for China, uh, and that is where Part uh, Two, you know, tells Monique what's going on, but he has not told Phileas, which is an important thing. No, actually, she figures it out first, and then she makes a deal with him. She blackmails him, is what happens. Yeah. She figures out that there's something going on, and then he, he kind of shares the whole story. And they agree to keep each other's secret that, you know, of what, why he is traveling with Phileas to get back to his village to return the Jade Buddha, and as long as he will help her stay on the journey so she can travel the world and be inspired for her art. Correct. But first, then, on the train, we run with Fix, who has been tracking them. Uh, he, he meets <laughs> two in the tea cart area as he's preparing the tea, uh, and unfortunately gets into a situation where he falls out of print. Yes. It, they're, they're not very kind to fix in this whole uh, particular nope. version of the movie. Nope. Um, and, and this kind of bad stuff doesn't happen to fix it all in the, in the original thing. So it's kind of sort of very entertaining. I mean, the actor is a good actor, I think, for the role. Right? I agree. Yeah. yeah. So it's... Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, him falling out the window is kind of sort of odd, funny, and typical Jackie Chan humor all at the same time, you know, so. Indeed, indeed. Uh, when they get to Turkey, however, they, the train is stopped suddenly and boarded by these soldiers who demand that Prince Hoppy has demanded their presence. And no matter that Phileas has told them he doesn't want to go with them, it doesn't really matter. And they are taken to the palace of Prince Toppy, who was revealed to be none other than Arnold Schwarzenegger, who at this time is the governor of California. So the movie – it's important to note the movie was the last movie he made before actually being elected, but it was released after he was elected. Yes. Sworn into office. So that's so it's important to note that a lot of people think that he how could he be acting in a movie and be the governor, you know, he shouldn't be taking that time. Well he didn't. He this was in the cam before anybody voted him into office. So Although he did appear in films while as while as governor. Yes, he did. But so we get this 
very odd scene, very uncomfortable scene of, of Arnold Schwarzenegger playing the sitar while belly dancers are dancing, and then he orders the four of the, the three of them into a bath with him where they sit and drink fruity drinks while he gets on Monique LaRoche. Yes. Was that the only one who was just unreasonably uncomfortable watching this? I. It was just odd. I'm not really sure what strange, you know, place that came from from a writer because it has not. But this has nothing to do with the book or the original movie no. or anything. This is completely made up for this particular movie. I. So he's got. He's looking for his seventh wife, right? That's what's going on, and he's decided she's going to be his seventh wife. So the scene ends where he's keeping her, and they're, and they they're about to leave. And yes, Cheryl. My only idea is someone in the costuming department maybe had a fascination for um for early 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 swimwear, and they and they watched. <laughs> And they wanted to, I like it. And they wanted to have a scene so they could show the history of early, early periods swimwear. We shall call this Cheryl's early period swimwear thesis. I like it. That's uh, it, it's as good an explanation as any. Yeah, but Monique and Passport Two seem to be getting along. Getting well along fine with the moment, but it's it's Phileas who's uncomfortable, right? And, and the viewer, and the viewer, yeah, because you really <laughs> want this to end. You don't understand. The problem is, is you, this scene is presented, and as it's going on, you really don't ever understand where it was supposed to be going. It was just really awkward, and so um, Phileas at one point though kind of sort of um, un- undercuts the conversation and confesses how he feels about Monique and Monique says oh and then she kind of has this moment and then she pulls away from from Prince Happy there who who she was uh, very happy to be near Happy yes she was enjoying it and when Phileas basically confesses uh, that that he's having some sort of feelings for her she pulls away and Prince Happy of course is not happy with this Uh, he wants her to be his seventh wife that's right. Or else she'll be unhappy, sir. Yes, and orders the men to leave. However, they are able to blackmail him to release Monique because he has a statue of Rodin's The Thinker, which he says is based on him, yeah. that the men then threaten to destroy. It, so, it's a pretty flimsy statue. Yeah. I, I, there's... <laughs> I don't understand how it was hollow. It was like an impossibility. No, I don't. I don't get it. The statue starts to fall apart, and after it seemingly falls apart all on its own, they then escape with Monique. He makes them all go in like the back room and drop their weapons and stuff. They accidentally drop the statue because they really didn't mean to, right? It's just the no. statue is so flimsy it starts falling apart in their hands, and. Phileas still has the arm that fell off initially, and they all run outside, and then they use the arm to block the door. And my problem with this is the rest of the statue was so flimsy, but the arm wasn't? Yeah, I don't understand this whole, this whole part. Like, I'm just watching this whole sequence of Prince Happy and the statue with 
Like, if that's supposed to be Rodin's The Thinker, you know, that statue's still in one piece. Yes. Did he make another copy? Was there, like, a Xerox machine? What's going on there? I'm not sure. So, I've seen Rodin's The Thinker. It doesn't look quite like that statue, so I'm thinking that that was supposed to be a version of Rodin's The Thinker that looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger. But the but the insinuation in the movie is that it's the actual Rodin's The Thinker. Yes. Um, I also and like that it's like it. I know. I also like the little card in it because it's Happy Birthday, but it's H-A-P-I, like Prince Happy's name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's, it doesn't really matter as much as we're getting into it. It's just kind of sort of, the whole, the whole scene with Arnold Schwarzenegger is just bizarre. Overall, it's obvious this part of the movie was put in to, as a vehicle for Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he's got this really awkward smile and tan throughout the whole thing. And I really just think that that's, where they were going with it was just to showcase how awkward Arnold Schwarzenegger can be. <laughs> I think you're right. Because once they escape, like, that's, that's the part that you expect from this section of the film, right? Once they escape, they're out in India. The, the British authorities have been sent after them because Lord Kelvin figures out that Passepartout is the one who robbed the bank. Yes. And so <laughs> India, at the time being a British possession, they can send the British authorities after them, and they start chasing them through the street. Two, two of the best lines in the movie are at that moment, too. One is that, thank God we own India. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? And the other one is because Lord Salisbury comes up with this plan of, uh, once they know that Passepartout has is the one who has stolen the um, Jade Buddha, is that they not don't just make a wanted poster for him, but they make a wanted put uh, Phine- Phileas Fogg on the wanted poster as well as an accomplice. So they both end up being wanted in all the British colonies. It's, and uh, Lloyd Kelvin awards him by saying, I'll, I'll name a beef-related entree in your honor. Yes. <laughs> that would be Lord Salisbury. Yes, Lord Salisbury. Salisbury steak, folks. Yep. Hamburgers and gravy. But Inspector Fix catches Passport 2 and it handcuffs him, which leads to another of the trademark Jackie Chan scenes where he's trying to fight off the Jade Warriors while handcuffed to Inspector Fix. <laughs> this is, again, like I said, this is this is as classic Jackie Chan is using whatever's on hand, and in this case having a person and using them to do the martial arts is very entertaining. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah, it's very amusing watching him fling Inspector Fix around and, and still, you know, manage to get away and win the fight, as well as watching Phileas threaten one of the other warriors with a sextant that pops out of his cane. <laughs> but what's great is he goes, this is a mystical knife, and he's, she's like, it's just a sextant. Yeah. <laughs> like, she knows exactly what it is. Like, he assumes because she's... Because of the time period she her being Chinese that she doesn't know and she knows that that's the best part about the moment. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Uh, but they they do manage to get away and they manage to get to China finally, where they get to the village of Passepartout and we find out that his name is actually Lao Jing. Yes. Uh, and there they it's very funny watching him try to keep the pretense while everyone in the village is rushing to greet him and be happy with him and, you know, screaming his name, Lao Jing, uh, he, ma- he tells all the children to rush over and give Phileas the same greeting and, and all, all these sorts of things, as well as watching Phileas um, not be able to hold his, his drink with uh, yes. Lao Jing's mother. <laughs> yeah, I, I presume they're just drinking the, 
Chinese version of sake because uh, China China has sake as well as Japan. Most people think it's only a Japanese drink, but there are rice patties in China as well. So, oh yeah, I I would presume you are correct in that. Uh, but it's the next morning is when we find when Phileas finds out um, what is going on, and the black scorpions attack shortly after that. So it's sort of a <laughs> the end of, of both storylines. And the black scorpions manage to capture Phileas, Monique, and Passepartout. Uh, and it's not until Lao Jing is released and we have a, a fight between the ten tigers who show up and the black scorpions that yes. the Jade Buddha is returned to the temple and we get the, the all-out martial arts fight, including Sammo Hung that you mentioned earlier. Yes, very good stuff. I, I, this is, so this is a good fight. I, well, first of all, it start, it's like two fights. All right? I pointed out to Cheryl that, first of all, the initial fight between the uh, Black Scorpion leader and um, Passport 2, Lao Zing, Jackie Tan, whatever you want to say, um, it's a jailhouse-style fight, right? Which is when in every prison movie, whenever the two prisoners fight, all the rest of the prisoners circle around them, and when one of them tries to get out, they get pushed back in. Or if one of them is like the leader, the, leader, the guys on the ring always help the leader. And so this is the leader case, but it, it's it's just a jailhouse style fight initially until the ten the rest of the ten tigers show up. Yes, it is. But it's a good, good fight. I mean, the whole sequence is very good. You yes. know, it's funny too because Phileas and uh, Monique are put in these sort of stockades where they can't move; they're just standing straight up and down, and they get knocked over onto Jackie Chan's back, and he has to prop them back up. Like you said, the stuff about reacting to his environment, it, you know, it works very, very well. Yeah, like he picks up a bench and there's a sequence where he's basically just fighting using a bench as a weapon for a good few minutes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, and then, he's, and then he starts stealing weapons and all sorts of stuff and tries to uh, get, beat these guys, and it's, uh, it's not looking good for a while until the Ten Tigers show up, and then things just really go their way. And he, he makes the Black Scorpions promise never to return. Yes. Finally winning the day. Right. So it sort of it ends the subplot, mostly ends the subplot yeah. of, of him and the Jade Buddha. But it kind of spins things into a different direction because Phileas is unhappy that he was been deceived and goes off on his own and leaves China. Whereas they're willing to help him win the bet, uh, he's not willing to travel with them any longer. Yeah. He feels betrayed. You know, to a certain yes. degree, and that makes sense. Um, I, but there is an important thing that happens here: is is earlier on um, when they're traveling in India, um, Passport Two is telling the story to of the Ten Tigers to the kids on the train, and Phileas makes some comments about how it can't be true. You know, and the kids on the train are very, very, very smart. You know, he has these smart kids in these movies, right? Where they where they play the play them up knowing more knowing than the adults. And one of the kids says, "Well, all all legends have." Started as truths, and he says, "Well, yes, but all facts, all truths are fact, right?" So it's he he makes that connection. But then at this point, when he realizes that that Passport Two is really Lao Jing, and Lao Jing is really one of the Ten Tigers, and that the Ten Tigers are real, he has this revelation that you know about the whole thing is that sometimes there's more to what's just you know numbers and specifics. You know, he kind of. This is when he starts to have this moment of throwing out the rule book that he's so specific about in the beginning. Yes, very true. Very, very true. Uh, but the problem is, he 
you know, whether pride or, or whatever it is, he can't bring himself to keep traveling with these folks. And he travels to San Francisco, uh, ends up losing his money from a, a clever female thief who pretends to have a sprained ankle, and he leaves his stuff with her to go get help. And ends up begging on the street next to Rob Schneider, which is not a good position to be in. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it, it's very, very funny. The whole conversation about uh, you, what do you have? What do you have that they don't have? You have your stink. That whole conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, also, so the, the, there's a point where he gets punched in the face. The guy who punched him in the face is actually the the cameo by the movie's director. Oh, nice. Frank Karashi, that, that, that guy in that suit that punches Phileas, is, is the director. Very cool. So, But they find him in, uh, but, lying in the alley. So, Yeah, they, they do find him, and they manage to convince him that, you know, hey, maybe you'd be better off with us. <laughs> Which I'm thinking, you know, 20 minutes with Rob Schneider is pretty much all it would take. <laughs> yeah, well, it wasn't even 20 minutes. It was that and some stinky cheese until he finally ran him off. So. <laughs> Uh, but they, they hop a stagecoach uh, because they're in San Francisco. they got to get across the country to New York to take a steamship back to London. And they get in the stagecoach, get caught in the middle of the desert with their stagecoach broken down. And then the Wright brothers, played by the Wilson brothers, come yes. upon them. Um, not only – this is the very first time that the Wilson brothers ever appeared as brothers of any sort inside any movie, by the way. So up until this point, I they always they always uh, ran their own separate careers. Um, I did want to mention that even before this happens, is that this is so I said that I didn't understand General Fang's motivations, and they get really confused in the scene that occurs before this, where she basically says, "You know what? Forget about the Jade Buddha, right? Because nobody has that anymore anyway at this point. Right, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you all the Jade in China if you help me take over this region, right?" And, but the map is what I had the problem with because it says Chinese Empire. Then you have the Great Wall of China. Then underneath it, you have Chinese Empire, Ch- China, right? And the thing is, it wouldn't have been the Chinese Empire. It would have been the Mandarin Empire. And I'm not sure why they. That's that's what's going to trip you up on this. No, no. Also, the comment about the Great Wall of China, which is perhaps what this, this thing that's blocking my reserve. <laughs> and the guy goes, "That's the Great Wall of China." He goes, "Well, that will have to go, and it's not that great." <laughs> Right, yeah. <laughs> that just shows you what Lord Kelvin's all about. What, you, what you'll find out later in the movie is he is in a position of power undeservedly, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you, and you learn slowly through the course of the movie that this is like he's – the guy's an idiot. <laughs> he, he runs the Academy of Science the way he does because he doesn't even understand what science is, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I, I think that's probably a safe assumption. Yeah. But back to uh, but, the back to the Wright brothers. Yeah, they show uh, Phileas the plans that they have for a flying machine. Which, if you know anything about the Wright brothers, they invented that's the their thing. Machine. Well, yep, yep. And Phileas is like, "Oh, that that's exactly what it is. It's the steering cable steering system. That's what I've been missing from my own flying machine, which we saw at the very beginning of the movie." And. Uh, he he suggests a few changes, but they manage to patch him up and and get them on their way. And they end up in New York City, and word of Phileas Fogg is kind of spread around the world, right? Because yeah. he's doing this daring thing. So there's this huge crowd cheering for them in New York, and a policeman there uh, confronts them and then you know, says, oh, I'm an Irishman. I don't really care that you robbed the Bank of England. Come with me. Leads them into a dark warehouse where General Fang and their minions are, are inside, as well as at the aforementioned Statue of Liberty. 
Yeah. So they're going to stop them from reaching their ship to get to London. Yeah. I, so here's an interesting thing. So they have these um, – between these um, these locales that they're at, they have these – what I call them the magical travel montages, right? The bizarre montages? I, I, so they're done by he, the Henson Corporation, right? They're animated and puppeteered by the Henson Corporation. So okay. I have – Okay. And then when you say that, then, you, then it kind of – when you see and know that, it kind of – they make more sense as to why they look the way they do. But uh, I think it's a good – I think it's better than the line on the map thing. I kind of enjoyed it a little bit more. I, it's okay, and I get yeah, – now that you say it's the Hensons, I understand that. The one that drives me nuts is that the movie begins with one where there's a chicken in pajamas talking to the narrator, and we don't know who the narrator is – and it's all very bizarre, and we crash into the city of London. We find out way later into the movie what it is, like almost near the end. It's her painting, right? Is That's why yeah. he's so attracted to the painting, right? It's, it's not just a man flying. It's a man flying, and there's a bird, and that's the whole the whole right. bird But we don't thing. know that at the beginning of the movie. I'm not even sure we know it at the end of the movie because I don't think they ever make the connection for us. You just have to be smart enough to make the leap that when they paint the flying machine to look like a bird that, oh, everything's supposed to click into place. You know, oh, but by you the way, people... were disturbed by the chicken in pajamas? I've seen worse in movies. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying... That, that's even more disturbing. Yeah. What I don't understand, though, is... is in the actual book, to get across the United States, one of the things that they do is they, uh, he, they convert their coach to be wind-powered, right? Like they hook a, a sail up to it. And I thought that would have been like a really good thing in this type of movie for, the ty- for what's going on in the movie. But I guess the Wright Brothers thing was just more important to them than actually you know, something that might have worked equally well or if not better. So, Not that I'm against the Wilsons. I'm just saying that the coach with the sale would have made more sense at this point. Probably so. Probably, Probably so. so. But we have, we have this vicious battle in and around the pieces of the Statue of Liberty where, where they manage to you know, take out Fang's warriors, but they, they miss their boat because Phileas could have gotten to the boat because Lao Jing's fighting off the warriors. However, he goes back to help Lao Jing, and they miss the boat. Uh, so they manage to get after the, after they finish the fight, they manage to get on a different ship uh, with a very disturbing captain. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I don't think the first thing you want when you board a ship is to uh, have this the captain uh, disrobe for you. Yes, and show you the parts of him that the shark bit off. <laughs> I, I can guarantee you that was not in the Jules Verne. It's been a while since I've read it, but I guarantee you that wasn't there. Yeah, in the Jules Verne novel, he just he, the ship is going to one place, and Phileas uh, incites a mutiny to get it to go to London, which is where he wants to, to go to. Yes. Bizarre stuff. Yes. Uh, but they, they're still behind, right? They're still not going to make it. Uh, until Phileas decides that we could build a flying machine out of the ship. Which the question I had is the same one the captain asks after he catapults the flying machine off the ship, which is, how are the rest of them going to get back? <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's it, well, they were only six hours from London by flight, I guess, right? Because they arrived with minutes to spare. 
there, there was a there was a weird thing going on. So he says at one point in time that they'll that they'll still be six minutes shy of London, six hours shy of London, right? Right. The way, at the at the rate it goes, if they drop if they went to wind power, so they go to flying. Flying still takes six hours, so the boat's only six hours away. It's not that far offshore. I mean, it's far. It's still the Atlantic Ocean. It's still a big place, but it's you feel bad for the captain. But uh, it's not germane to the well, story. Well, I anyway. would feel bad for the captain if he wasn't such a weirdo. Yes, but he's going to get his problems repaired. That was part of the deal. <laughs> Which I don't really want to know about. No. <laughs> I Again, it, it's, like, um, it's like the Prince Happy stuff. It's like, okay, they just inserted this in and we're not really sure why, you know. Yeah. It was quirky for quirky's sake. Yes, thank you. Quirky for quirky's sake. I like that. I'm going to remember yeah. that. Which, gonna, which doesn't generally work. I'm going to use it and bottle it. Good. Just just pay me a royalty. That's all I ask. <laughs> It'll just have your name above the title of the product. <laughs> Is that good? That works. So they, they take the flying machine, and they, they, they manage to crash land into London right in front of the Royal Academy. The problem being that the, the wager was that they had to make it to the top step of the Royal Academy by noon. And unfortunately, they do not do so. Uh, and Lord Kelvin manages to come out into the square where they are and sort of do a victory dance over the fact that they did not make it. Which makes everything that happens from that point forward very strange, I might add. Hey, we, well, you did forget the moment with Lord Kelvin playing with the Slinky in his office humming the Slinky song. <laughs> yeah. There, there's a few scenes, so they're flying in, and as, as more information is coming in as to the fact that Phileas is actually going to make it to London, right, is that um, there's these scenes where they just have somebody opens the door Lord Fang's, uh, Lord Kelvin's office, and he throws the pen at them every single time, so like, by the end of the scenes, there's like four or five pens in the door. Yes. <laughs> He's not a very nice guy. All right, so one, one thing I'm not getting, right, is Phileas thinks... I mean, okay, so long story short, Phileas thinks he loses because he doesn't think he gets there at noon, right? I guess we, already, we just said that, right? The problem is, is he, he does make it, and we'll find out why in a second, but wouldn't Kelvin know what, – what did Kelvin think at that point? Exactly. That's <laughs> what I'm wondering. I'm like, he's sitting there doing this, this victory dance, like, ha-ha, I've won, and you know, it's all over, and blah, blah, blah. And then we find out, because the Queen shows up, because Lord Kelvin goes on this long rant about how no one can stop him, not even the Queen, and then about how awful the Queen is, and then the Queen shows up, played by Kathy Bates, and puts him in his place, and re- and reveals to Phileas that he actually won because he has a day to go. Yes. Because they crossed the international date line, therefore they gained a day. Right. So, but Kelvin's already being carted off to prison when that happens. Right, but... Wouldn't Kelvin know that? I, I'm trying to figure that part out myself. I guess, regardless though, but let's go back to the fact that it was pretty, made pretty clear throughout the movie that Kelvin really didn't understand science or necessarily the world in general. Okay, good point. <laughs> so perhaps he didn't know what time it had, or day it actually was either. I think there's a lot he didn't get. Yeah, I, I think that's just what it sums up. By the way, can I say that Kathy Bates... Dressed like that looks remarkably like the real Queen Victoria. If you've ever looked up a picture of her, she did. I mean, that's I mean, she, very true. That was an amazing pick for the Queen. That was one of the best picks for Queen Victoria I've ever seen, other than the one that appeared in the Torchwood series. 
and the and the Doctor Who series. Very anyway, cool. uh, Phileas wins. He did. He won, and he ascends to the top step and gives Monique a big smooch, and everybody lives happily ever after. Yeah. We assume. I don't know what happened to Past Part 2. That's my question. It's like, does he stick around, or... Probably like, goes you know, back I'm good. I'm going back. Probably has to go back and guard the Jay Buddha. That's what I would... Yeah, there's nine other tigers for that. Hey, they didn't, they didn't protect it too well in the first place. I'm with Cheryl. the Royal Bank of England. <laughs> That's because those black scorpions are mean people. I do want to comment that somewhere in this in this in this podcast or this or this movie, there is the answer to life because um, the guy who played the constable, Ian McNeese, was in this movie and he was also in Hitchhikers. Ah, there is a guy who was in Star Wars. Uh, yeah, he was in Return of the Jedi. Uh, Kit West. He's just one of the guys who's uh, at the academy. One of the big staunchy pompous dudes. Okay, he's actually a, a mechanical effects supervisor from um, Return of the Jedi, and in this movie, he's a special effects supervisor. Cool. So, yeah. Yeah. It, so other it, than a fun movie. Yeah. It, I ahead, I really ahead. enjoy the movie. It's not. I love the movie. I think it's a great movie. I I mean yes. It's kind of silly, but you know what? Like Ryan said, sometimes you need silly movies in life, and, you know... A lot of I, times you need silly movies in life. Yeah, so, I mean... Absolutely. I mean, dramas Absolutely. are dramas, but they make you think too much, and sometimes you just want to sit back and enjoy. <laughs> and you can just sit back and enjoy this movie. You don't have to put thought into this movie at all when you watch it. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just saying that there's really... There's nothing deep. Enjoy the story. Know what goes on, you know, and it's fun. I think it's fun throughout. Yeah, I agree. I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think the only the main criticisms that I would have of it is it's a little too long for me. Yeah. Um, it's it's two hours long, and I think they spend a lot of time, uh, um, you know, focused on s- certain things that might not be as important. Prince Happy. Um, as opposed to <laughs> focusing on the main characters, you know what I'm saying? Uh, so that that would that's where it kind of loses me a little bit. Um, but even that scene, as bizarre as it is, is still fun. You know what I mean? It's still funny. It's it's quirky. It's it's, it's enjoyable to watch. You just kind of going, "What am I looking at right now?" Right. The awkwardness of the scene plays into the awkwardness of the main characters, and all the main characters are awkward in the movie. Uh, yes, very much so. So, um, even if we look at it as the four characters that are the main characters from the original book, you know, so you have Fix, Phileas, Passport 2, and Monique, who is really taking the place of Adora, we decided, was her name yes. in the... Okay. And uh, so, when you look at it like that, it's, it, it, it works in that sense. It's, but end-to-end, it's just very enjoyable. It's not, it's not my favorite Jackie Chan movie by any stretch of the imagination. Um, anytime, because I prefer any time that Jackie Chan does drunken martial arts. Yes. <laughs> Always fun. Always um, but other than that, I, I enjoy it. So I can't really, I don't really have much else to say. It's a great one for kids, I would say, because I, I, I watched it by myself, but uh, as soon, my, my kids 
saw me watching it, and you know, they were begging to watch it. And I think it's it, it's a good one. There's nothing all that offensive or anything like that, like a lot of the Walden movies. And I think it would be a good one for kids to sit down and watch and maybe get them interested in the book, I think would be a great thing. Yes. Kids I didn't say there are, a few, there are a few comments which, you know, luckily go over the kids' heads. Yes. So, so, so we do have, I would say, because this is PG-13, so it, I think some of this can go over kids' heads as well. Well, I think that's important. So here's the thing. I think it's one thing to say a movie is a family movie, right? I think that it's got to appeal to the entire family, not just to the kids. So the, the, the kids is, is there, but the subtext for adults is there as well, right? Like the awkwardness of the of the bath scene. <laughs> yes. Right? So it, it's, it's there. The, the, that sense of humor is there. The love story is there, which the kids aren't necessarily going to care about the love story. You know, that type of stuff. And and kids love um, action, right? That's what that's one of the that's the fundamental basis of uh, animated cartoons is is the action. So if you have the kung, the kung fu and the martial arts in there, that really plays into stuff that visually is going to be appealing to children. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. All right. So around the world in eighty days ratings. Uh, I will go first this time. Uh, I will give this one a three. Um, I think it's not obviously it's not profound. It's not anything that you're gonna you know go down in history as as the best movie ever. But it's definitely fun and it's it's enjoyable to watch. Uh, like like you said, Todd, the action's great. Um, I really like the chemistry between Coogan and and Ch- Jackie Chan. And so I will give this one a three. What about you, Cheryl? I'm gonna go probably three and a half. Just because it has Jackie Chan and Todd loves Jackie Chan, I do too. <laughs> but um, it's definitely, I definitely agree. It's up. It's, it's got that you know whimsical. Let's let's do something and let's take this and go with it type of thing. Mr. Perlmutter? it's a Jackie Chan movie. I definitely like it for that reason. Um, it's not. As far as movies go, it's a middle-of-the-road movie. So for me, I'm going to go with three and a quarter. All right. Yeah, so, you know, it's just, you know, middle-of-the-road, but a little bit more for Jackie Chan-ness. Got it. I forgot to mention that Jackie Chan does his own stunts in this movie as well. Jackie Chan does his own stunts in every movie. That's an important thing. Um, it, it, even at this past uh, San Diego Comic-Con, he just released a video on his website that I watched uh, already where he discusses – where one of the big question topics that he discusses is his injuries throughout his life and because he – what he has to live with as a result today and why kids shouldn't do that kind of stuff at home that they see him do. He, in his movies, does his own stunts. Um, he doesn't understand green screening and never incorporate it into anything he does. So if you see him climb a wall, that's him climbing the wall. He doesn't use stand-ins. Um, if you see him escape from a straitjacket, it's him really escaping from a straitjacket or really fighting with a ladder on his shoulders or really falling three stories. That's all him. There's nobody else doing that for him, and that happens in this movie as well. Oh, yeah. Very much so. Especially in that chasing... The balloon sequence. Yeah, like um, his most one of his most famous uh, martial arts movies is Police Story, and for half that movie, he is actually wearing a cast that is painted to look like his other boot on his other foot. Most people don't realize that. 
I did not know that. That's impressive. Yeah. So he's uh, he's a hard worker and a yep. funny man. Indeed. All right, so that's going to do it for our look at Around the World in 80 Days. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, until next time, you can keep in touch with us over at DisneyFilmProject.com. Go leave a comment in the show notes for this question for this podcast. Rather, uh, leave us a question if you want in those show notes, or you can do that over at Facebook. Uh, find us on Facebook at Disney Film Project or on Twitter at Dis Film Project, and you can leave us notes on movies you'd like to see, questions, anything you want. We'd love to hear from you guys, hear what you think of the show. So please go do that. And haven't mentioned it in a while, but uh, go leave us a review on iTunes as well. It helps people find the show. So until next week, folks. Good night. This is what happens when you leave home. You meet people. This is the Royal Academy of Science. We don't have to prove anything. Well, rules are meant to be broken or stabbed with spiky shoots.